0: What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In a stunning turn of events in federal court today, under intense questioning by government lawyers, a swamp broke down and admitted it had buried the bodies of numerous endangered species. Okay, that didn't happen. But Rudy Giuliani would like to wish it into being because in an exchange with the Atlantic's Elena Plot, this happened. The reporter asked, what are you planning to do next? Giuliani answered, looking at a jaw suit to end lawless action. I suppose he means Jew suit or possibly even lawsuit. Then the reporter asks, who are you going to sue? And Giuliani answers, the swamp, bloop. Trump v. The Swamp, and excellent follow-up here, how do you sue the swamp, bloop, in federal court? Ah, common mistake, she wasn't asking for the jurisdiction, but the legal strategy. I mean, do you serve the swamp with papers by renting a fan boat and dropping the documents in the wet part? You have hereby been swamp And a federal suit. I mean, I guess that works against, say, the Everglades or the Okefenokee actual national parks. But what about Delaware's Great Cypress Swamp? It's purely a state matter. You know, if you want snakes and gators for your moat, as the president does, you're only going to drive up the price if you antagonize swamps. Swamps aren't going to want to do business with you. But Giuliani, the president's lawyer, not a lawyer, friend who happens to be a lawyer. Well, the president's consigliere, that's racist. Uh, The president's hype man slash current member of the bar currently in good standing is, of course, following up on that famous Trump promise. You remember how favorably his crowds reacted when he promised to sue. Sue. You know, I wonder if suing the swamp will lead to more Legal actions against ecosystems. Can you cease and desist the desert? Can you issue a stay for a savanna? Can you petition a prairie? Can you appeal an estuary? If you're in a good mood, can you file an amicus brief for a coral reef? All good questions. Sue. 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 A good lawyer marshals evidence. Giuliani compiles evidence against a marsh. Sue. 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 The real question is, what is Rudy doing? And saying and yelling, is there anything to this? So I tried to come up with a theory. This is the best I have. It's all part of a diminished capacity defense. You establish early on that you're losing it. And you can later on argue you were nuttier than a chestnut tree. I checked chestnut trees, deciduous forest, not a swamp. And so this means when they come for the president, the president can say, not my fault. I had Senor swamp, Sue, as my counsel. Or when they come for Rudy himself, he can offer that claim. A great lawyer might be able to pull it off. So what I'm saying is these two guys are screwed or in their swampy circumstance, quite sunk. On the show today, I spiel about the ridiculous, also ridiculous, but actually shocking and quite horrible assertions coming out of the president's mouth. And I offer a remedy or at least a punishment. But first, he was the first CEO of Netflix and is therefore still waiting for dairy Girls to get off 98% buffering. No, no, no. Mark Randolph left when Netflix was still in the mailing DVD stage of their business. But he was there at the inception of the company that some say will one day displace every Hollywood studio. And that others say, oh, you really want me to watch this stupid stand-up special from a YouTube star or this reboot of Queer Eye? That will never work. Huh? What are you talking about? It's working now. People love Queer Eye. No, that is the name of his book, That Will Never Work. I'd have gone with Netflix and Thrill. But ever the businessman, Mark Randolph knows not to overpromise. As you will find out as we discuss his book, That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. So one day in, I don't know, the late 90s, Reed Hastings returned a video to Blockbuster, and it was a 40 something dollar late fee. Good movie, Apollo 13. And from that, Netflix was born. Only thing is it didn't really happen or maybe a little bit of it happened or enough of it happened to become a good story. But if you want to know the real story of the beginning of the company that is forever associated both with Chilling and a third of all TV shows out there right now, you should read That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea, written by Mark Randolph, who is the co-founder and first CEO of, Of Netflix. Hello, Mark. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Mike. Great to be with you. So when he told you, when you first got the inkling of the foundation myth, (laughs) how'd you react?
1: It's a good story. You know, I I went, wow, that actually is pretty good. You know, people, people always want those revelation stories, that kind of moment it becomes clear. And I think anyone who has started something knows what happens when someone asks, How did it start? And you launch into this long story and their eyes glaze over. And so you look for a shortcut. And that was a good one. Yeah, it's the biopic seminal moment. And up until
0: recently, it was Derogore in every biopic to have, you know, the young Ray Charles looks out the window and his eyesight is faded, but he hears the music and bang, from there, a musician, a musical god was born. The same with uh, Reed and the, was it that it was late or not rewound or a little bit of both? Or did that change in the telling?
1: (laughs) I think it was it was the combination of the two. It was this general frustration. And, you know, there probably was a, a late Fiona movie. So it's not like this didn't happen. Right. It's just that it was just one component in a long saga. You know, I think people, people kind of imagine that Netflix somehow sprung fully formed into this multinational streaming giant. Yeah. But, you know, we went 10 years shipping DVDs before we streamed the first one. and Before we even shipped a DVD... You know, Reed and I were hashing around crazy ideas like custom baseball bats and personalized shampoo. And
0: <laughs> well, you weren't really batting around those ideas. You were coming up with them, and he was dismissing them. He'd think about them for a good thirty seconds, right, on your uh, car rides, but then he was he would always dismiss them.
1: Yeah, we, at the time we were carpooling back and forth to a job we both worked at together, and uh, both of us knew we were going to get fired because we had sold a company. And we had some time, and I was going to start a company, and Reed said he would be willing to back it. Mm-hmm. And so we needed that idea, and thus began the infamous carpooling. Yeah, And yeah, I, you know, I'd go and research, and I have an idea, and I'd do the research, and I'd pitch it to Reed, and then he'd kind of sit thinking, you know, he kind of is like a calculator that way, and then all of a sudden, boom, out would come this fully formed objection. And then we'd argue about it for the whole car ride, and then either keep researching and are rejecting it. But we really, we did not just instantaneously come up with video rental. I mean, we really did have dozens, if not hundreds of bad ideas <laughs> before choosing this particular bad idea to actually try and make happen. And you recognized in Reed who,
0: that he was what? Not just this towering intellect, but also a visionary, but also someone
1: who you could work with? Yeah, Reed and I hit it off immediately. And I think both of us, recognized that we each had a skill set that the other person was not as good at. Mm. I mean, on my side, I came up with this whole career of marketing. So I kind of had empathy. I could kind of guess how someone would feel about a price or wording or a product. And Reed came up through the software business. He was a mathematician, a computer scientist. And so he was the person who actually knew whether these things we were envisioning could actually be made real and how they might be scaled. And so together, there was something kind of really special about it. And the best thing is we had that radical honesty from the very beginning. We had no problem fighting like cats and dogs about something. But then as soon as it was self-evident that we had the right idea, we instantly forgot whose idea it might have been, what the objections were, and we both fell in behind what was obviously the right way to go.
0: So the key, or as you describe in the book, the key to Netflix was you had all these ideas, and you just mentioned a couple, that were personalized, this or that, and technology allows that to happen. But he had the exact opposite idea. Well, instead of personalizing it for each customer, like a personalized dog food, and that goes wrong, and you might kill a dog, right? Instead of doing that, think about it the other way. (laughs) Scalability. This was his insight. We need to scale. Now, I understand. Let's go way back before streaming. I understand why DVDs would be maybe scalable and mailable, but you guys founded this before, I think before you even knew that there was such a thing called DVDs. It's a little shocking that you would think of Netflix as a company that would fly and indeed did fly based on those bulky VHS tapes.
1: No, in fact, we had the idea. One of these brilliant ideas that I had in the car was, let's do video rental by mail. And you're right. This was back when everything was on VHS cassettes, whenever, you know, my kids watched Lion King about 600 times on one of those things. Right, And I went back to the office that day and I did the research and I had a lot of experience from my previous background in knowing what it costs to mail things. And that was one of the times when I came back to read and said, this idea uh, is not going to work too heavy. They're too expensive, too fragile. And so we scrapped that one. And In some ways, it was great because we had done all the legwork. We knew, wow, $8 billion category. Wow, competing against Blockbuster. Wow, with lots of ways to improve in this experience. But then our idea didn't work. But it was sitting in the back of our heads. Enough so that when we read about this new technology called the DVD and realized this thing was flat and thin and light, And more importantly, it was going to be priced to buy. All of a sudden, we realized it just might be the missing piece to that jigsaw puzzle. And that's what led us to say, wow, if we can mail discs to people, this could totally transform that old idea. Yeah. And that led to that moment where we then got in the car and drove back down to Santa Cruz where we lived. And I went to the used record store and bought the used music CD and then put it in the little gift envelope, like a greeting card goes in, and we mailed that disc to Reed's house. But that was, and when it got to his house, you know, unbroken in 24 hours for a first class stamp, it wasn't this brand new idea. It was the missing piece to an old one.
0: And what was that, Pat, Patsy Klein's Greatest Hits or something? <laughs> yeah. I wish I had it still. <laughs> so DVDs made Netflix, allowed Netflix to exist. But to some extent, did Netflix make the DVD?
1: Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna immodestly say no. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly helped kickstart the DVD. I mean, there was this classic chicken and egg problem that both of us faced, both meaning Netflix and the DVD industry, is that we were trying to start a company doing DVD rental by mail when I think at the time there was seventy thousand DVD players. And this isn't in, with 100 million households in the United yeah, States. Yeah, So, fraction. And the DVD industry had the exact same problem. They were trying to sell DVD players, but not a single video store was carrying DVDs. And so, we kind of were there for each other. So, for us, it solved the problem that – oh, and then what I'm talking about, of course, is that we did this promotion where we put a coupon in the DVD player boxes that said, hey – Buy this player, get three free DVD rentals from Netflix. And so it solved their problem that if someone bought the uh, player, they had a place to get DVDs. But it solved our problem, which was if you um, – well, how do we find a DVD owner? Yeah, and we got them right at the point of sale, and that really that really saved our ass.
0: Except and, that there was that one guy who was like <laughs> gaming the system and apparently you th- either this guy's buying thousands of DVD players or he's just ripping off uh our our giveaway.
1: Yeah, some of the stories in the book about people taking advantage of us are priceless. And that that was a great scam. Go, going in basically realizing that even though we were requiring a serial number in order to get this promotion and it was like 10 free dvds and then stupidly we didn't realize that the serial number is printed on the outside of the box mm. and this guy was going into uh, the, st- the stores and writing down serial number after serial number and all of a sudden we notice holy shit this this someone's someone must be really into dvd players because they're ordering hundreds of dvds from us Ah. Uh.
0: And, and back then, the DVD, I mean, when DVD started, there were, you write right, only 300 or so titles available. By the time you launched, there were 800 possible DVDs to order. But a bunch of these were like not real movies. They were just, <laughs> no. I don't know, some weirdo documentary that some guy decided to press onto a disc.
1: Come on, you I confess you were ordering the marching band uh, DVDs, weren't? Oh you? yeah,
0: sure. USC yeah, yeah. marching band home theater, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, awesome. <fancy.
1: laughs> yeah. yeah, basically, I think the stat, the the the, uh, the philosophy of the studios was let's just throw a whole bunch of shit at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and it was a, it was a classic era. Let's put it that way. So you stayed.
0: So Reed becomes uh, CEO, or you become co CEOs based on one of his. Very Vulcan moments where he uses <laughs> radical honesty and just tells you, "You can't cut it alone. Uh, I'm coming in." Is that
1: yeah? You know, and he, you know, he, you know, he, he kind of cracked. It was like ten o'clock at night or something, or eight at night, and he cracks the door and he you know, delivers those words that no one likes to hear, which is like the Mark. We have to talk. Uh, and and of course he was rightly concerned. We had just kind of done our pitches for the series B and. It was pretty clear that we were in trouble. And at first, I thought he was going to fire me or something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or, and I wasn't even sure how he could do that. It was my company. But then all of a sudden, I realized that's not what was happening at all, that he was proposing we do it together. And oh, that was certainly a better outcome. But it was still really difficult because I had had this dream of starting and running and making successful this company. Mm -hmm. And then as I kind of went home that night and chewed over what Reed had said with my wife, I, I was kind of realizing I had to split these things. That on one hand, if I wanted to run it myself, well, that was one thing. But if the more important thing was making the company successful, I kind of really owed it to people to do everything I could to do that. Even if it meant, letting go of that other piece of it so you know i'm not saying it was easy because it was emotionally really hard but i realized i had to do this for my employees i had to do it for my investors i had to do it for the customers and funny looking back on it now i mean history certainly shows that was a pretty good call so the Netflix you left was on its way to becoming the
0: Netflix of today. But today, Netflix is arguably the most powerful movie studio in Hollywood. They are in and to some extent dominate the content game.
1: Would, was, would your skill set have lent itself to that? I didn't start Netflix because I'm a movie guy. I am. If there was a blue collar, white collar in movie dumb, I'm a blue collar. Mm-hmm. I love watching them. My tastes are pedestrian. I couldn't tell you who Jean-Luc Godard is, or even if what nationality he is, or even I'm pronouncing it right. But I know George Lucas. Um, so, in other words, um, probably not. The other flaw that I have is I'm a Hollywood groupie. <laughs> I mean, I'm the person who, whenever they're down in L.A., I'm the person going, "Oh my God, was that Jennifer Aniston?" It's like I'm just I'm like a star. I'm like a star chaser. So yeah. I would have been terrible at that job.
0: And what have, you, uh, what have you been doing post-Netflix in the last 15 or so years?
1: You know, it, I was lucky and then I figured out pretty early, you know, two important things about myself. One is what I'm good at. And the other one is what I really like doing. And both of those are around early stage companies. I really, really love the unique problem-solving that comes from a really early startup. And here's Mark being somewhat immodest. I'm mm-hmm. actually pretty good at it. And once we had the IPO, once we could attract this world-class talent, once we had the resources, Netflix wasn't really a startup anymore. And I kind of realized that my heart wasn't in it the same way. I mean, I still loved it like you'd love a, love a kid, but I it wasn't the same thing. And so since leaving Netflix, I've actually gotten an amazing opportunity to help other people get their startups going. And uh, so now I do get to get that same thrill I was describing before, where I do get to come in and sit around a table with super smart people solving really interesting problems. And even better, I get to go home at five o'clock now. So it's really, I mean, it's, it's spectacular. Great, great, great. I'm
0: luckiest guy you'll ever meet. Mark Randolph is co-founder and first CEO of Netflix. His new book is That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. Thank you so much, Mark.
1: It's been a pleasure, Mike. Thank you.
0: And now the spiel. The president says a lot of hyperbolic, insensitive, and of course, untruthful things. So it's difficult to always register the proper level of shock and concern when he says something anew that deserves our shock and concern. I understand it's a useful defense and to tune him out or to downplay the seriousness of everything he says, it's just a means of functioning in the world or, if you will, practicing self-care. Today in a press conference next to the president of Finland, Trump lashed out at Democratic representative and head of the Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, calling him, Shifty Schiff. That is in the category of stupid, childish taunt beneath the dignity of the office, but still best to ignore. But Representative Schiff earlier today in a press conference made a very good point about a serious charge that the president had been lobbying at the whistleblower.
1: The president wants to make this all about the whistleblower and suggest people that come forward with evidence of his wrongdoing are somehow treasonous. Uh, and should be treated as traitors and spies. Um, This is a blatant effort to intimidate witnesses. Uh, It's an incitement to violence.
0: That is absolutely on point, and I think that needs to be taken quite seriously. It's destructive to the republic. It's incompatible with the function and purpose of the office of president. And now let's also consider the president's words about Adam Schiff himself. He should resign from office in disgrace, And frankly, they should look at him for treason because he is... And just in case you thought the word treasonous was ill-considered or blurted out in anger or in some ways a word that Trump would want to take back, that was not the only time in the same answer that he said the same thing. It should be criminal. It should be treasonous. He made it up. Every word of it made up. Again, this is behavior incompatible with the function and purpose of the office. And I use that phrase advisedly because that is one recognized definition of an impeachable offense. I believe that the two publicly expressed sentiments that I just played belong in whatever articles of impeachment are used against President Trump. And there's precedent to this. Andrew Johnson was impeached, impeached by the House on 11 charges, the 10th of which was publicly running down Congress via slanderous statements. It's... uh, 1860s language, but here's the 10th article. The president has been, quote, unmindful of the high duties of his high office and the dignity and properties thereof, and of the harmony and courtesies which ought to exist and be maintained between the executive and legislative branches of the government of the United States, designing and intending to set aside the rightful authorities and power of Congress, He did attempt to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, contempt, and reproach the Congress of the United States and the several branches thereof to impair and destroy the regard and respect of all the good people of the United States for Congress and the legislative power thereof, which all officers of the government ought inviolably to preserve and maintain and to excite the odium and resentment of all good people of the United States against Congress. Trump did that. Trump did exactly that. Update the language a little bit or don't odium. That's what went on. The article laid out the specific quotes that President Johnson said, which were, I have to say, gentler than anything Trump has said about treason and the whistleblower and Schiff. In fact, I've been researching it, and I think this president alleging that a high-ranking political opponent, a duly elected political opponent, should be tried for a crime punishable by death may very well be the most undemocratic, irresponsible, destructive thing any president has ever said. Now, it is said that Andrew Jackson, Trump hero, once remarked, quote, my only regrets are that I never shot Henry Clay or hanged John C. Calhoun, which as a quote has all the hallmarks of a, a quip that has been massaged along by history. But I looked into it and uh, it it does seem that Jackson said something like this about Calhoun. This is from the 1860, and Calhoun was his original vice president, by the way. This is from the 1860 work, The Life of Andrew Jackson, quote, in his last sickness, he declared that in reflecting upon his administration, he chiefly regretted that he had not John C. Calhoun executed for treason. My country, said the general, meaning Jackson, would have sustained me in the act and his fate would have been a warning to traitors in all time to come. That very same 1860 book regarded his sentiment towards Clay as one of more uh, regret that the two weren't closer. The major point, though, is that Jackson said this when he was out of office, in his last sickness, infirm, in debt. He never talked like that. As fiery as he was, he never talked like that while president. Elected officials over the years have ripped into presidents. Franklin Pierce was called the pimp of the White House. Sounds like a great idea for a book series. And Truman said, quote, Richard Nixon is a no good lying bastard. He can lie out of both sides of his mouth at the same time. And if he ever caught himself telling the truth, he'd lie just to keep his hand in. But two things about that. One, Nixon was a liar. And two, Truman, like Jackson, was far removed from the White House at this point. In fact, Nixon was asked about some of Truman's insults during one of his televised debates with Kennedy in 1960. And he said this.
1: We all have peppers. I have one. I'm sure Senator Kennedy has one. But when a man's president of the United States or a former president, he has an obligation not to lose his temper in public.
0: Great advice from the Yorba Linda Loam. And that's being offered right to our current president, who will not hear the advice and should be impeached as a result of it. So the Ukrainian dealings deserve impeachment. And so do these sentiments, meaning today the president engaged in impeachable acts. In fact, at a larger press conference, he was given a second chance to contextualize the charges of treason. But when asked about his prior description of Schiff as treasonous, Trump not only stood by it, but went to extra lengths to take away any future defense of, oh, that's puffery or, oh, that's usual political rhetoric Trump's main goal in discussing the charge of treason when asked about it was to underline that he really, really meant it. Treason is punishable by death, but it is Trump who, in his own case, is issuing more and more rope. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader. He has never Netflixed and chilled, but he has offered to Roku and get to know you. Christina DeJosa also helped in producing The Gist. She will one day Disney Plus and discuss The Gist. We like to HBO Go with a cup of cocoa. Oomperoo deprooduproo, and thanks for listening.